Let's enjoy God's Word together for a while, and uh, in, in order to do that, I'll ask you to take your Bible with, and, and turn with me to Galatians chapter 4 in the New Testament. Uh, if you need a Bible, we brought some, and, or we keep some in the back, so just raise your hand, and we'll share a copy of God's Word with you. And there's a little note page in your bulletin if you don't know that part of the drill, and we just ask you to pull that out. That'll be of some help along the way. And church family, it uh, has been more than a month that uh, since we were last here in this part of our Bible, sharing our study series in the book of Galatians. I've been on vacation, and we had Life Group Sunday last week, and so we're back here again, and I'm looking forward to it. I've missed being with you and being in the book of Galatians. Before we dive into the scriptures, though, would you just for a moment, I invite you to bow your head with me, and I'll invite you to repeat a simple prayer uh, after I pray, and I'll, as I pray it, you repeat after me. Uh, it's my prayer for me this morning and my prayer for us, but I uh, would like you to enter into that with me if you wouldn't mind. So here, let's do that. Spirit of the living God, open my heart, open my mind. May I love you more deeply and serve you more effectively because of this time in your word. Amen and amen. Allow me to begin this morning with a short story from my own life that you may or may not already know. My mom and dad grew up in homes that did not know Jesus and were, if I were to use a phrase from today, their homes were quite dysfunctional. My parents had met for the first time uh, in seventh grade, and by tenth grade, they were sweethearts. To escape the difficult home lives that they were experiencing them, they decided, uh, they decided to run away at the age of 16. They uh, couldn't marry without parental permission, and that wasn't going to happen, and so they just thought, well, we're going to run away. And they did. I don't advise that, but that's what they did. They ran away to Salt Lake City from Denver and uh, found what work they could as 16-year-olds. And I, well, I arrived nine months and one minute later. (laughs) My brother, 18 months after that. So fast forward now five years. My folks have returned to Colorado, and they've been introduced to the claims of Jesus by a friend. They were 23 years old by then, and and they believed the gospel. They believed who Jesus was and what he had done for them, and their lives and our home was radically transformed. Jesus was at the center. My dad, following the lead of the Holy Spirit a few years later, eventually goes to seminary and enters the pastorate. Both my brother and I grow up in a home where Jesus is Lord, and both of us give our hearts to Jesus in saving faith fairly early. I was 12 years old when I came to faith in Jesus. And then now, because my parents uh, had my brother and me so early in their lives, they begin to do the math, and they realize that they're going to be empty nesters by the time that they're 36. Well, they had more parenting energy that they wanted to give, and so having only raised boys, their heart's desire was for a little girl. And so it was that when I was 14, uh, into our home by way of adoption came an infant baby girl born to, interestingly enough, a 16-year-old teen living in a home for unwed mothers. I remember that day as if it happened yesterday, one of the really high-water moments, uh, watermark moments of my life, 
was a rainy Monday in Dallas. We drove to this adoption home, and the caregiver walks into the room where my folks and my brother and I are, and she hands my mom this little bundle uh, in a blanket. And there's a little girl. She was six weeks old, utterly helpless, completely powerless, abandoned. She brings absolutely nothing into this situation except her incredibly great need to be loved and adopted by someone. That's all she brings. The four of us immediately gathered around her, uh, pulling away the blanket from her face and looking into her face for the very first time. And I tell you, in that split second, in that one incredible second, this forsaken, helpless, so needing of everything in order to survive little child was now officially a, a member of our family. She, in that single moment, became the object of all of our our unrestrained, unconditional love and and our affection, our complete acceptance, our full protection, all the provision that we could supply. She was ours, and no one could take her from us. I remember watching my mom and dad sign the papers on the desk in that room that made her ours by law. She comes into our home. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a place that she can now call her own, a place where she can grow and she can thrive, a place not only of physical supply but of, of emotional support and spiritual blessing as well. She's given our family name, Westcott, and we give her the name Rebecca. She instantly had an equal standing, though she was six weeks old and, and one minute in our family. She, equal, she had equal standing to my brother and to me in our home. She was an heir of all that was a part of our family life, a recipient of all that, that our family owned or would ever possess. She was going to share in that. And she had neither done nor could she have done anything to earn or deserve that. My mom and dad simply wanted to lavish their love on this little girl. And her life would never be the same. Only God can really know what her life would have been uh, if she hadn't come into our life. All she brought into that room that day was a great need to be adopted. When we were back in Colorado, Lisa and I, just a couple of weeks ago, we celebrated with my sister, my little sister, her 45th birthday. She's married, uh, she has three kids of her own, and she's living a real faith in and love for the Lord Jesus. And it's just a wonderful story. And I love her. She's part of my family. I, sh- I share this moment from my life with you because today in the passage that we take up here in our ongoing study of the Galatian letter, chapter 4, verses 1 through 7, adoption. Our adoption, church family, brother, sister, and Jesus, our adoption by God is what comes into view. If you look at verses 4 and 5 of chapter 4, here's what we read. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive what? Adoption as sons. Paul is going to use adoption, the concept of adoption that we all have at least some working knowledge of to present truths to us 
that are at the very heart of our understanding of our relationship with God, what salvation, salvation in Jesus, uh, faith in Jesus means to us. So brother and sister, if, if you've never spent much time thinking about or thanking God for the fact that you have been adopted by the God of the universe, that he has brought you into his family, Maybe after this morning, uh, that will be a more sweet and precious thought for you, and you will spend some time, maybe even in your quiet time, just reflecting on that uh, this coming week. Adoption has special meaning for me, obviously, but not only for me. We have in our church family right now uh, couples who have adopted children, and we right now have three young couples in our church. Uh, the Bears, the McCaughies, and the Allens are all right now moving through that process of uh, uh, working toward fostering or, or foster adopt and uh, working with the county and getting approved and, and just a really exciting time for us as a church. Hope you will be praying for these families as they move forward. Uh, and so the focus on adoption is especially timely, I feel, uh, for us as a church. Now, since we have been away from Galatians for over a month, let's, let's remember where we have been in order to get where we are today in chapter 4. Galatians is the, the letter the Apostle Paul writes about a year and a half after he and a, a companion, a ministry companion named Barnabas, had traveled into what is today uh, Turkey, the country of Turkey. It was called Galatia back then. And they went into that country for the sole purpose of introducing non-Jewish people, Gentiles, to the truths, to the claims of Jesus, who he is and what he has done, the gospel, the good news about Jesus. They told the Galatians in several of the key cities that, that Jesus, as God in the flesh, came into the world to make a personal relationship between a holy God and a sinful us possible. Paul told them how Jesus died for sinners on the cross, how he was buried, how he rose the third day, proving that he was more powerful than sin, more powerful than death, more powerful than the grave. And that anyone who believes, simply believes what Jesus has done, puts their full faith in the loving grace of God through Jesus, instantly that person is given the gift of eternal life. And they have a place in heaven with God forever. That was the message that Paul brought to the Galatians. You don't have to do anything. You don't have to do certain things to, to try and earn God's acceptance, to earn his approval or his love, or to make him want you more. You just believe that Jesus saves you by his death and his resurrection. Amen? Amen? Great, good. The gospel, that's the gospel. Who Jesus is and what he has done appropriated into my life by grace through faith in Jesus. We've taken the true gospel message that Paul preached to the Galatians and we've kind of boiled it down into a mathematical uh, statement, if you will. Jesus plus what? Nothing. Nothing. Jesus plus nothing else equals Everything that matters, right? Everything that matters. Well, no sooner do Paul and Barnabas return to their home church in Syria and Antioch, having planted several Gentile churches now in the Galatian region, than Jewish false teachers called Judaizers come in behind them and they start spreading another message that really confuses and unsettles these new Christians. Their message, Jesus plus other things equals everything. In, in other words, in order to be 
really accepted by God, to really be in right relationship with God and loved by him, the Judaizers were saying, well, you need to have not only Jesus in your life, but you need to follow all of the other Jewish rules and traditions and dietary practices and observe the Jewish holidays and, and, uh, and observe the customs of the Jews. Do the Mosaic law, said the Judaizers, and, and if you do that, you'll be, you'll be good with God. God will... God will want you. He'll love you. You need Jesus, but you need these other things. Well, this was a wholesale corruption of the true gospel. Nothing can be added to to what Jesus has done for us without taking away from Jesus, right? I mean, that's the truth. When we add anything to Jesus, like the Judaizers were attempting to do here, we actually turn salvation by grace through faith into salvation by good works and by good deeds. We abandon the, the freedom of the true gospel of Jesus for the enslaving chains of legalism. Do we all understand that? We all see that, right? So when Paul learns that these Judaizers have done this, he fires off this letter called Galatians to be copied and circulated amongst these churches and amongst these new Christians. And the seriousness of what is at stake is impossible to miss, even at the very beginning of the letter. If you flip back to chapter 1 for just a moment, find verse 6 again. You'll remember this from our time in this part of, of our study. Paul says, I am astonished. I can't believe it. I'm dumbfounded, he says, that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one that we preached to you, let him be what? Accursed. Let him be doomed forever. You think, you think Paul's amped up in the moment? Man. And, and he's amped up for really good reason. All that God's salvation is about, Jesus plus nothing else equals everything else. I mean, that, that, that truth is on the line. And, and how these, these Galatian Christians are going to live their Christian life is on the line for them. If they don't get this right, everything else is going to be wrong. So look once more with me then at chapter 3 um, and verse 23. Ground we were over the last time we were together in Galatians. We're just going to kind of warm ourselves up for getting into chapter 4 just to remember where we're at. Paul writes verse 23, Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, under these rules, under the Mosaic law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian. Paul says the law is a good thing. It was our guardian to keep our sin nature in check. Uh, it, it, it couldn't do that perfectly, but it was designed to do that by God to kind of keep our sin nature in check until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. Justified. We've, we've spent time with that word in our study together. It, it means uh, to be pronounced not guilty and fully righteous in the courtroom of heaven by God through faith in Jesus. That's what it means. Pronounced not guilty, fully righteous in the courtroom of heaven by God through faith in Jesus. Are you justified this morning? Through faith in Jesus only, right? Nothing else you've done, but everything Jesus has done. That's us. Verse 25. But now that faith has come, we no longer are under a guardian. We're no longer under the guard of the law. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. 
For as many of you as were baptized into or identified with Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There's no male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. In other words, when it it comes to our salvation, uh, neither our ethnic roots or, or our status or our station in life or our vocation in life or even our gender carries any merit or any advantage. We are all sinners and we're all in the same place of need. Faith in Jesus makes us equal. It makes us one. That's how God looks at us. Verse 29. And if you are Christ's, and oh, don't you love that phrase? If you are Christ's, are you Christ's this morning? If you are Christ, I love that. If you, if you belong to him, if you are his possession today because you put your faith in him, then you, Paul says, are Abraham's offspring. You are heirs according to promise. Now, the Judaizers were telling the Galatians that because they were Jews and they were descendants of Abraham, they had a salvation advantage over the Galatians. And that the Galatians really needed to become as Jewish as possible so, and do the, the rules of Judaism so that they could be accepted by God. And, and Paul says, no way. Abraham was, was saved by faith. He wasn't saved by ceremonial Jewish rule keeping. He made that, opening, he made that point in the opening part of chapter 3, which we looked at. And, so, and that's how we're saved too. We're saved by the same faith. And so that makes the Galatians and us spiritual offspring of Abraham, Paul says. And it makes us heirs. Then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. Now that word heir in verse 29 implies that someone is going to receive something in the future, right? That's what an heir does. They are, they are the inheritor of something that they don't currently possess, Recently, uh, Lisa and I uh, updated our living trust since we had not done that since our kids were quite small and they were still living at home. But now our kids are grown and they're out of the house. They have families on their own. And, and so it was time to update our living trust. And, and as we did that a few weeks ago, we, we had to sit down with an attorney and together we had to think through and designate how our earthly possessions, how our estate would be distributed when we're not around anymore. Who's going to get what? And, and so the idea of heirs and inheritance has been freshly on my mind as we've been thinking about that. The Holy Spirit says here through Paul's pen that we are heirs according to promise. We are the inheritors of God's promise of eternal life and all the blessings of heaven. We are inheritors of that, heirs of that, through faith in Jesus. And so Paul says, you Galatians are heirs of an eternal glory, not because you're great keepers of the Mosaic law, but because uh, because of what Jesus has done for you and the fact that you've believed in that. Stay with the true gospel. It's the only gospel. You can just hear kind of Paul saying that. And it's as Paul uses this word heir at the end of chapter 3 that he it triggers a new train of thought for him, a new word picture that he wants to use to further push forward, forward the argument of the true gospel. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. Chapter 4, 
verses 1 through 3. Let's take a look at those first. Paul says, I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he's the owner of everything. But he's under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, spiritually speaking, we were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. Let's, let's unpack that just a little bit. Paul, in verses 1 through 3, uses an analogy that would have been very familiar to his first century readers. It, it's the analogy of a, of a small child transitioning from childhood into becoming a mature adult. Because in our culture, we don't have what we might call that rite of passage, that coming of age celebration or ceremony like most cultures in the world do. They have that moment when, when a child officially transitions into uh, adulthood. We don't have that really. This picture may not hit us quite as powerfully as it would have the Galatians, but I think we can get it. Paul pictures a child, a, a small child based on the Greek word that, that Paul uses, uh, who is a son, and he's a son in a well-to-do family. Now, as a child, the, this, this boy lives under conditions that Paul observes don't differ a whole lot from the slaves who live in the same home. The child has tutors and he has managers over him, just like a slave has a master over him. And this young child must do the rules. He must honor the boundaries that have been defined for him, set for him, because this little boy is immature. And uh, he may be the heir of everything legally or by blood, but, but he's really not the heir in reality because he's under managers. He's under the management of other people. A, a child needs that. We understand. The world, their world needs to be defined. It needs to be monitored and regulated with, with rules and boundaries for their sake and for the sake of others. But they're not supposed to need that forever, Right? Not as, as they grow older and become more mature, you, you, you get out from underneath that and you grow into your adult responsibilities. The child who has grown up is released from that, that old way of living and enters into the full freedom of adulthood. And at the date set by the father, the child's status changes dramatically. He's no longer simply the legal heir, he's actually the heir in fact. He has no long, he's no longer a child. He's not a slave. He's not like a slave anymore. He has the, re, the full responsibility of what it means to live in the freedom of adulthood. So Paul takes that picture and he says, in the same way, verse 3, we also, when we were children, spiritually speaking, before we knew Jesus, we were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. Now, I love the fact that Paul says we here. I don't know if you caught that, but you might want to circle that or highlight that. We also, when we were children. Paul doesn't set himself up here as being superior or better than his Galatian friends. He says, this is me too. This is, I came from this very same place that you are coming from. There was a time when I didn't know Jesus and, and I was in this place of being enslaved. In his word picture, Paul sees the, the small child as being like anybody who is, is living under the false teaching of these Judaizers, living under Mosaic law, needing to be hemmed in and, and governed and directed and bound by rules and rituals and ceremonies. Paul calls this the elementary principles of the world. 
This is the kid's stuff, he says. We know he's thinking about the Judaizers and their legalistic false teaching because if you go down to verse 9, chapter 4, here's what we read. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and work, worthless elemental, elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? Question mark. He says, I can't believe you'd want to go backwards. You have Jesus. You have the freedom of Jesus. Why would you go back under the rules again? That makes no sense to me. In his letter to the Colossians, Paul uh, writes something very similar to this. Colossians chapter 2, verse 8. We'll put it up on the screen for you. Paul says, see to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. Boy, Paul here associates the elementary principles of the world with deceptive human traditions and philosophies. And if you stop and think about it, every man-made religion, every, every other belief system in the world aside from Christianity is all about this. Man-made traditions and philosophies. Do the works, do the rules, do what we, what we all come up with and think will impress the deity that we're pursuing. Do that and he will, he'll want us. He'll like us. He'll, he'll want to accept us. All human religion, no matter where we find it it, it, it doesn't matter if it's ancient or if it's modern, it inevitably involves the elementary things. Paul says that. The idea of achieving divine acceptance by your own efforts. And, and honestly, fellow Christian, I don't know how it goes for you, but, but even for me, at this stage in the journey of my Christian life, I find myself having to fight against the the, the thought of sliding back into, well, if I do this and this and this, God will like me more. If I stay away from these things, uh, God will, he'll, he'll, be, he'll be digging that, right? But if I, if I go into this stuff, uh, he's not going to be liking that or me. I do that. I think about that. I, I, I can think like that. And that's precisely what Paul wants so desperately to lead the Galatians away from. Out of the immaturity of salvation and, the, and acceptance uh, from God by, by doing good works and legalism and into the maturity of living in the grace and freedom of God's gift through Jesus. Are you, are you following me with this? Yeah, you're with me here, right? Yeah? When we were children, spiritually speaking, we were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. And then comes verse 4 and the little three-letter word, letter, three word, three letter word what? It's but, right? That was hard to get out. I struggled to get that out. That little word but, that is such a wonderful word. We sometimes roll right over it, but what a great word. Because it says there's something different. There's something better. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive what? Adoption. Adoption as sons. Brother, sister, we have been adopted by the God of the universe through faith in Jesus. Do we really have any idea what that means? I certainly do not think about this or ponder this like I should or could but I have a little bit of an understanding because of my life story. And it's a rich truth for me. 
If you look at the top of your note page, we're, we're not off the mark when we lay out the formula, Jesus equals what? My adoption. Because that's essentially what these verses are saying. Jesus equals my adoption. Without him, you and I are hopelessly lost orphans, spiritually speaking, who have no share in the promises of God, no share in the glories of heaven, no inheritors of all that God has given to Jesus. No matter how diligently we try to to work our way into that place, it'll never happen. So let's take a closer look at what Paul says here about our spiritual adoption through faith in Jesus. What's the source of our adoption? What's the source? Verse 4, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son. What's the source of our adoption? God the Father and the Son, right? Very clearly, the source of our adoption, God and Jesus. Implicit in these words are not only divine intentionality and purpose and plan, God sent forth, and that's a plan, that's, that's deliberate uh, purpose, but these words declare that Jesus is eternal deity as well. God sent forth his son. God doesn't send a substitute to us. He comes himself, doesn't he? In the person of Jesus. And Jesus preexisted, this verse would say, this, this phrase would say, he preexisted with God as God before entering our world. That can't be said of any other person, that they preexisted before they were born. But Jesus, we can say that about him because he is God. He is God. It brings to mind the words of Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 and 7. You would know these words. Christ Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped or held on to, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. He didn't need to hold on to his deity and his, in that, that position of equality with God. Or there's Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3. The sun is the radiance of God's glory and what else? The exact representation of his being. You look at Jesus and who do you see? You see God because he is God. And Jesus as God willingly submits to the Father who desires to send him into the world to save us. And this he does in what Paul calls the fullness of time. In the same way that a human father in the first century set a time for his son's coming of age, his transition to adulthood, so did God the Father set the time to send into our sinful fallen world his son to redeem us in the fullness of time. It means that that, that Jesus came precisely when everything in heaven and everything on earth was exactly where God wanted it to be. Was the right time religiously? The Jewish people had endured the severe discipline of God through the Babylonian captivity, if you know the Old Testament scriptures. And and as a result, they had forsaken idol worship. They would never go back to that. They would keep their focus on, on the one true God, which was a great thing. Their temple was rebuilt as well as the system of synagogues scattered around the country that would aid in teaching and proclaiming the Old Testament scriptures, which were now completed. Uh, at the time that Jesus came. And those scriptures told of a Messiah who was going to to come and he was going to rule in power and righteousness. And and so it's the right time, not just, just religiously, but it's the right time prophetically. God's people were eagerly looking for the Messiah. It was the right time culturally. 
Alexander the Great thoroughly established Greek culture and language throughout the known world of the time. So there's a common language that would aid in the, the rapid spread of Jesus' truth, his gospel, when he came. And it was the right time politically. As Rome succeeded Greece as the world power, it instituted what was called the the Pax Romana, the Roman peace, which provided an economic and and a political stability to the empire. The Romans created this extensive system of roads and tied the the whole of their empire together with these roads and the stability of the Roman peace. And the apostles and the early teachers of the gospel used those roads to their full advantage and spread out uh, with the good news of Jesus. And so, so God's timing was absolutely perfect. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son. What's the next phrase? Born of woman. Yeah, born of woman. Paul's choice of phrase here, inspired by the Holy Spirit, does two things. It proclaims the humanity of Jesus, lets us know that Jesus was fully man, born of woman, just like you are born of woman and I'm born of woman. And that's critical to our salvation because unless Jesus is fully one of us, then he really can't represent us as uh, before God. He can't stand in our place. He can't be our substitute. So his humanity is declared here in this statement. But born of woman points us to something else. What is that? The virgin birth, right? The virgin birth, born of Woman. Typically, the scriptures, whenever someone's birth is mentioned, it, it's stated that they are the offspring of a father. So-and-so begat so-and-so who begat so-and-so, right? We're familiar with that? Sure. It, almost always this is uh, a person is traced through their, the male line. But not here. Not with Jesus. Jesus was miraculously virgin-born, the perfect coming together then of humanity and deity born of woman. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman. What's the next phrase? Born under the law. Just like every other person who's ever been born, Jesus was born under the, under the obligation to obey and to be judged by the perfect law of God. Whether that was in the written Old Testament as it was for the Jews or whether that law was written on the heart as it was for you and I, according to Romans chapter 2. Jesus satisfies the requirements of God's holy law by living a perfectly obedient life. Yes? Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who in every respect has been tempted as we are. What's the last phrase? Yet without sin. Is that important? (laughs) That's important. Because Jesus lived a perfect life of obedience to God's law, he could not only offer up his life in our place for us, but because we couldn't do that, he could redeem us. He could could pay our sin debt for us who are under the law, but unable to keep it. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law. If you were with us back in chapter 3 when we were uh, landing on verse 13, we dug deep into this word redeemed. Is this an important word to us, brothers and sisters? Boy, I'll say it is. Uh, what does this word mean? Well, it literally means to buy out or to buy back. And it was used of slaves whose freedom was purchased by somebody else. 
Through payment of the required price, a slave could be redeemed and then set free by the purchaser if they wanted to do that. And so Paul draws on that. The Galatians were familiar with this, this, this thought. God wanted to do that, so Jesus became the payment price that bought us off of the slave block of sin, if you will, and purchased freedom for us. Romans chapter 8, verse 1. It's a verse you know well. Let's read it aloud together right off the screen. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Are you in Christ Jesus? Are you condemned then? Absolutely not. You are what? You're redeemed, right? Man, we have been completely and fully and totally liberated from an eternity without God through faith in Jesus. We've been redeemed, and we say, praise you, Lord God. And yet at the very same time, we have not been set free to to fend for ourselves. We've been adopted into the forever family of God. Our salvation story just gets better and better. Redeemed, but now adopted. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive, say it with me, adoption as sons. That word adoption, it's, it's a, it referred to a, a, a practice where an adult or a couple who couldn't have children uh, or maybe didn't have a son would uh, they would take in one who wasn't blood and make that that person part of their family. In the Roman world, adoption was an honored custom, gave special dignity and, and full family status to one who wasn't born into the family. And it, it's the story of my sister, really, honestly. Just like that. She, she had no part in our family biologically or genetically, but but she came up, became a part of that, a full member of our family. Often wealthy, childless couples would adopt a young slave who would gladly trade his slavery for sonship with all of the attending privileges that went with that. Now, because sin has alienated us and separated us from God and made us slaves, we're not naturally the children of God, but we can become sons of God by by adoption. You can become a son of God. I can become a son of God. And since we're sitting right here with this word right in front of us, let me touch on the use of this masculine word, sons. Ladies, uh, does this cause you to struggle a little bit when you read that you're a son of God? Does that bother you at all? Why doesn't Paul say sons and daughters here? There are translations that are that are coming out right now where they've actually changed this verse to say sons and daughters, even though Paul did not write that. He wrote sons. Well, here's the thing. Paul says that we're all adopted as sons for a very specific reason. In the first century culture of the New Testament, young girls were hardly ever adopted, maybe never adopted, And as we know, women didn't have the same rights as men. It was a very much male-dominated culture. They would not carry on the family name. If they were to be adopted, they would get married. They would lose that, so the family name would not go on. And, And even if they were adopted, well, they didn't factor into the inheritance of the family estate because the inheritance 
passed almost entirely to the firstborn son. So they were out of the picture in that way. So if the translation would have been sons and daughters, it wouldn't have meant very much to the Galatian women that Paul's writing to. That would not have felt very good. As a woman, though, when you, you hear that you are sons of God by adoption into his family, you want to be cheering. You want to be saying yes, because what that says is that in God's eyes, you have the value, you have the status, you have the privilege of a firstborn son as much as any other person would have that. It's an honor for you to, in this moment, have this analogy applied to you. And this ties directly back into verse 28 of chapter 3. There's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There is no what? No male or female, for you are all one in Christ. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 5, the Holy Spirit reveals that in love, God predestined us for adoption as what? Sons. Very deliberate choice of word through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. God is not some hesitant, reluctant foster parent who is half-heartedly agreeing to take on an orphan. He is from a place of infinite love for the sinner, according to this verse, determined to make us his adopted sons, and we receive all of the inheritance that goes with that. Many of us would know the name J.I. Packer, one of the great scholars and theologians of our time. The book that he wrote that he is best known for is a book called Knowing God, and many of you probably have that book on your shelf at home. In that wonderful work, Packer writes these words. He says, God's adoption of us is the highest privilege that the gospel offers, higher even than justification. Now, what was justification a moment ago? God pronounces us not guilty, fully righteous before him through faith in Jesus. That's justification. Not guilty, fully righteous. Packer says, no, adoption is higher even than that. To be right with God, in, uh, with God the judge is a great thing. But to be loved and cared for by God, who is your father, well, that's even better. In love, God predestined us for adoption as sons. Through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. Packer goes on to say the entire Christian life has to be understood in terms of our adoption. And I agree with that. Paul would most heartily agree with verse 6 as well here and there with, with, with what Packer says. And then he writes in verse 6, And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, what? Abba, Father. God's signs and seals our adoption papers in this verse. Paul says he does that by giving us the gift of the Spirit of Jesus, the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity. At a moment when we gave our life to Jesus, the Holy Spirit of God comes to live inside of us and becomes the seal of our adoption. The guarantee. Just like I remember watching my mom and dad sign the papers for my little sister, and she became ours in that moment. The moment that you give your life to faith in Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit comes to live inside of you and seals your adoption papers. It's a great mystery to be sure that God would want to live in us. But it's the truth, isn't it? It is the truth. It blows my mind this morning to think that while you and I are sitting here and we're worshiping and enjoying the Word of God together, 
in heaven, the angels right now are covering their faces. They're covering their faces. And they are crying out, holy, holy, holy. And you and I, we get to call God Daddy. Right? Because that's what the word Abba means. It means Daddy. It means Papa. The angels hide their faces. We cry out, Daddy. Is that a blessing? Wow. Romans chapter 8, verses 14 to 17. Paul writes, kind of enlarges on this truth. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are what? Sons of God. Are you a son of God today? Absolutely. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery, rule-keeping, law-keeping to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, what? Abba, Daddy, Papa. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Man, oh man, blows me away. You did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you've received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry. Say it with me. Abba, Daddy, Papa. One last truth out of verse 7. All of this leads us to be able to say that today, through faith in Jesus, you and I have the status of of true sonship in God's family. Man, we ought to walk out of here on a cloud with that thought, with that knowledge. Verse 7, So you're no longer a slave. And we cry, Hallelujah! No longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. The Judaizers, the false teachers want to make the Galatians slaves again to the law, to the rules, to the self-improvement strategy, to the endless good performance that you never know if you're good enough performing it. That's what the Judaizers want for the Galatians. And Paul says, you're no longer that. You're no longer a slave, but you are a what? You're a son. And because we are in Jesus by faith and Jesus is in us by the Holy Spirit, the ultimate outcome of our adoption, brothers and sisters, is that we inherit everything that Jesus owns. We are co-heirs with him, Romans 8 said, and we are inheritors of all that belongs to him. Everything that belongs to Jesus, we are heirs of that through our faith in him. And he gladly, gladly shares it with us. J.I. Packer said it well. God's adoption of us is the highest privilege that we will ever receive. Do you believe it? Let's live as adopted sons. Amen? Let's pray.